All right, good to have you guys here. We got a lot to, to look at, and we got some slides and some things, and so uh, uh, we want to dive right into that. Uh, last week we we began, uh, and we'll end it today. The Halloween that changed the world. Now, a lot of people don't know that on October 31st, there's more to celebrate than just Halloween. There was a Halloween nearly 500 years ago that literally changed church history and has actually impacted the kingdom of God and still impacts us today. And uh, to many Christians, uh, they know more about Martin Luther King Jr. than they do about the man he was named after. The man he was named after was Martin Luther, uh, a German monk who over 500 years ago was used of God to bring the light of the gospel in the midst of the dark ages. So if, you, if you're kind of like, oh, wow, we're in church history, where are we at? Last week, you can go online and, uh, and get the message from last week to catch up. But I do want to say this. Why is Reformation Day celebrated on Halloween? It's because nearly 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, a German monk uh, by the name of Martin Luther ushered in a new day in church history, in the kingdom of God forever. We said, what's the Reformation? Uh, last week we defined it. It's a religious movement from 1517 to 1545 that God used to bring the light of the gospel to the Dark Ages. And the question of the Reformation, the question of Martin Luther's life was this, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the reason it's called the Dark Ages, at least from the perspective of God's uh, God's story, because history is really his story. The reason it was called the ages is because the gospel had been all but lost. Not totally, but all but lost. And the way to be saved was to believe in Jesus, but also to work your way to salvation. And Luther, Martin Luther, this German monk, was not finding peace, assurance, by working his way to salvation. Because here's the thing about working today to being as good as God is that you never know when you've done it. You know, if, if, if religion is spelled do, you never know when you've done enough. That's why a great question to ask people uh, to find out who they're trusting in for their salvation is to ask them the question, if you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And people who are trying to work their way to salvation will always answer and say, I don't know. Why? Because you don't feel like you've ever done enough. And here's the bad, bad news about working your way to salvation. You never can do enough to be as good as God. I mean, let's, you know, you know, let's just get honest here. God is perfect. God is holy. God is, God is everything that we're not. We fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, if I'm trying to work up to Him, I never know if I'm enough, and the reality is I can never do enough. And so Martin Luther uh, began to ask this question because he had several near-death experiences that always cause us to think, where am I going to go when I die? And so he began to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And last week we saw that he tried to do everything that in the Dark Ages, or, or actually that the Catholic Church teaches to be saved. So he said, well, if I want to be saved, I need to become a monk. So he tried becoming a monk, but he still felt guilty. He still felt 
like he hadn't done enough. So then he became a priest so he could celebrate Mass because in the Catholic Church, the only people that can uh, take part in the Lord's Supper and actually handle the bread and the juice is a priest. But that didn't work. That scared the bejeebies out of him because here he is, according to Catholic doctrine, the bread becomes the very body, the very flesh of Christ. And he's like, man, I'm unworthy to do this. And he gets all scared and gets all shaky. So then he thinks, hey, maybe I need to uh, uh, do more penance. I need to suffer more. And I need to... Uh, uh, and so he traveled to Rome. And because, hey, if that's where all the spiritual people are. But when he went to Rome, what did he find out? That uh, the priests and the bishops and the people were more ungodly than he was. And he's like, I know I'm lost. I'm not, you know, so what, what, what's happening there? And so then he said, well, I'll become a Bible scholar and I'll start studying the scriptures. And that was the best thing he did. Because the truth of the gospel is found not in us, not in other people, but where? It's found in the scriptures. And that's where he came to Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, let me tell you a funny story about this. This basically happened uh, actually about 1519. He, he nailed, we're going to see in a minute, he nailed uh, the, the uh, 95 points on the door of the castle church on October 31st, 1517, two years before he actually came to a saving experience. But Martin Luther had a problem with constipation. I bet you didn't know you're going to learn this today, but but he did. He had severe problems with stomach problems all of his life, and so he spent a lot of time sitting on the toilet. I mean, he and this is the day when you couldn't go and get you know get medicine and easily be cured of this stuff. And a lot of historians believe that based on something that he wrote in history, that he came to this revelation in Romans one seventeen. That, that salvation was a free gift from God and not something you had to work for as he sat and meditated on the toilet. Now, that may sound... See, I, I got Robert's attention there. I knew I'd get some of you guys' attention on this. Now, that they may, may sound kind of crude and everything, but it's kind of... Uh, it, it very likely happened that way. And I think there's some really cool things for us to be reminded. That's kind of the sums up everything about the gospel. Okay, here he had tried to do all these holy, great things. And here he's doing one of the most kind of, you know, uh, unclean and most human down to earth things. And yet God reveals to him all this study that he'd been doing. He's like, oh, this is a free gift. And he embraced it and accepted it. And it totally changed his life Uh, because the most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man with a common Bible committed to an uncommon cause, and that's the Great Commission. Last week we looked at the inward life of Martin Luther. What was going on in his heart? What must I do to be saved? And he came to a point where he accepted Christ, and it totally changed him on the inside. And the rest of his life now is to get that good news out to other people. And so what we're going to look at today is not a monk in search of salvation, but what we're going to look at is a pastor who, as a true believer, wants to get to zero at the dawn of a new day. 
He's going to usher in a new time in church history, a new time in the kingdom of God. And I just want you to go through. We're going to look at seven things that he did to begin to share with others what God had given to him. And so you're going to learn a little church history, but also I hope it motivates you to be vocal about what God has done in your life. That ought to be the national consequence of accepting Jesus. I want to tell other people. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And we're going to show you some pictures of actually where these events happened because in 2003, uh, we were able to take a team of our, our people, a, a small group of our people, to Germany, and we actually went to these places that we're going to hear about. So you're going to see some, uh, some uh, uh, throwback Thursday pictures of, of myself and my wife, which are a little scary. We'll go through those quickly. And uh, actually, we were there visiting Keith Gandy, the missionary that we just prayed for. So let's take a look at it. A pastor uh, who wants to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, it said that even the, if even, or this is what one of his students said, uh, a student uh, that studied under Martin Luther. If even the fiercest enemies of the gospel had been among his hearers, they would have confessed from the force of what they heard they had, that they had witnessed not a man, but a spirit. He was a force. He was passionate about the gospel once he learned it. And here's the first, one of the first things he did. Uh, number one, Luther nails it. Luther nails it. This is what he's most famous for. It occurred on October 31st, 1517. And if you see in your notes, it says he hammers 95 statements for debate on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, on All Saints' Eve, October 31st. And basically, you say, why is he nailing things on a church door? Because in those days, the church door would be like a blog post. Okay, today, if you want everybody to read something, you have a blog post, you, you, know, you put it on your blog post. Or if you're at work, if you still have one of these, you have a bulletin board, and you put what people want to see. Well, in those days, the blog post, the bulletin board, was the church doors. And so your church doors would be made out of wood, and they'd be covered with all these people's, you know, things that they wanted the community to know about. And so Martin Luther was learning these things about uh, that were wrong with the Catholic Church, so he wanted everybody to talk about it. He wanted to debate these things, and so he hammers it on the door, and there were 95, 95 points, or they're called theses, the 95 theses. And basically, they're just 95 statements that he said, hey, here's what I think is wrong. Let's talk about it. Here's another thing I think is wrong. So he had a lot of things that he wanted to talk about, 95, 95 of them. Um, and what was he talking about? Well, look in your notes. It says he attacked the abuses of indulgences, not the proper practice of them. And you say, well, wait a minute. What's an indul indulgence? Well, let's look at it. you got three key words there in your notes. The first is penance. Penance is one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church that dealt with confession and forgiveness, uh, which was uh, administered by priests. So, if you, since you're working your way to salvation under the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, you're working your way to salvation, and so when you want forgiveness, you would go to a priest and actually purchase the ability to spend less time in purgatory, all right? Or if you had a loved one in purgatory, and they're suffering there, getting cleansed so that they can finally get to heaven, if you wanted to lessen their time in purgatory, you would want 
you would have to do penance. In order to avoid doing penance, you would buy an indulgence. Look at the next thing. Indulgences. Documents prepared by the church to sell to individuals either for themselves or on the behalf of a dead loved one. And as a result, the living purchaser or the dead loved one would be released from purgatory for a certain numbers of years. So, penance is, you know, saying Hail Marys, doing, doing something, doing some work to lessen your time in purgatory or the time of a loved one. But with an indulgence, you could purchase a document, kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. You could purchase this document that would lessen your time, and you go around, I have less time in purgatory because I have this piece of paper, or Grandma uh, Lucy is going to have less time in purgatory because I, I bought this. And, um, and then if you were really lucky, the church would offer a total indulgence. Take a look at this. A total indulgence uh, would release a person altogether, but it was seldom offered. In other words, sins that were forgiven before they were committed, confessed, or even done uh, done for them would be forgiven. So a total indulgence was the get out of free jail. It was a way to totally avoid purgatory. So this wasn't offered very often, but Luther just, it, it drove him nuts that they were doing this. Why? Because here you're being forgiven for sins you haven't even committed yet. Okay, you haven't even worked to get that forgiveness. And so at this point, Roman, uh, at this point, Martin Luther is still a good Roman Catholic, but he says, even as a good Roman Catholic, I can see this is bad. This is bad. Now, why would they, why would they sell these things? You tell me. Why would they sell these things? To make money, to make money. The Bible talks about false teachers who want to gain money. And what was going on was, to St. Peter's Basilica in, in Rome, the big uh, St. Peter's church that the, the, uh, that where the Pope you know, lives and, and worships, they were building that. Well, you need money to, you know, like any good uh, church building program, you need money. And the way they got that money was they offer total indulgence. Hey, this doesn't happen very often. I'm getting in on this. And so you would buy this. This Man, I can skip purgatory and, and this will get me to heaven. And so they, they were offering these. Now, where Luther lived, they didn't sell these things. Uh, because the guy that was in charge, we talked about him last week, Frederick the Wise, he had his own money-making relic business. You know, he had his own business. And so what was happening is, Luther's people, uh, he was a priest, he was a monk, he was shepherding people. They were going across the, the border to buy these total indulgences. Then they would come back, and if they were sent, Luther would say, look, you need to stop sinning. They say, no, I don't. I've got my total indulgence. You know, I got my get out of free, a get out of jail free card. This drove Luther crazy. It was this bad. Uh, this, uh, there was a guy by the name of Tetzel that was selling, uh, these total indulgences and he would preach these powerful sermons and say at the end, once the coin into the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So, I mean, he had rhymes, they had, he, had, he was rapping this, and people were buying this, and Luther says, this is bad. we got to talk about this. And so, on October 31st, 
the which is All Saints Eve. Halloween means Hallow Eve, the Eve before the Holy Day, the Hallow Day, November first, and that was called All Saints. You would people in purgatory. So he's very strategic in what he's doing. The night before, everybody's going to be praying and 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 buying indulgences and doing penance for people in purgatory. He hammers on the church door. Here's 95 things wrong that we got to talk about. All right. Now, um, so what happens? Number two. Number two, uh, Luther publishes it. Three years later, well, let me say this. He nails it to the door, and and what happens is the Gutenberg press has just been invented, which is like the internet just being invented. For the first time, you can take what someone has written, hammered on the door of the church, and you can print it and give copies to people all around. And so someone takes Luther's 95 Theses, and they print it, and they start publishing it. Well, as I said, a couple years after he did this, he truly is born again. And he knows now the problem is not indulgences. The problem is we are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not offering salvation as a free gift. And so he writes three books. And we're not going to go into all what those books are. I just want you to understand that he begins, after he's born again, he says the issue's not indulgence, the issue is the gospel. And he writes these three books and he gets them printed. And let me just tell you what they're about. The first one attacked the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. The second attacked the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And he said, look, they have all these sacraments, all these holy rituals, and there's only two ordinances in the Bible. And as Baptists, we know what those are. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so he says, hey, we got to get rid of all this extra ritual. And then the third thing he attacked was the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. So let me just say this. You know, he, he writes three books, and the three books everything that the Roman Catholic Church is built on. And he prints it, or in our terms, he shoots it out on the Internet. And it goes through the printing, the use of the Gutenberg printing press. How do you think the Pope responded? Huh? You're messing with my money-making machine. More than that, you're more than that. You're messing with me. I mean, everything that we teach, you're questioning. And what was he questioning it based on? On the Bible, which is what you know the Roman Catholics claim to teach. Now, uh, needless to say, Luther is excommunicated by the Pope. Okay, so now the good Roman Catholic monk is no longer a Roman Catholic. He is now a Protestant. What is a Protestant? One who protests what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and is now giving just the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a picture here of. Uh, there is uh, our own Jeff Brand. Is Jeff here today? Jeff, there you are, Jeff. There you are. Right there, that is a replica of the Gutenberg Press. So we were able to visit right where. Uh, uh, there in Gutenberg, right where the press was, uh, or where Gutenberg uh, made his press, and uh, pretty amazing. 
Now, just think, that's the equivalent of your computer, okay, basically, in getting information out, all right? And so that had just been invented. He's publishing these works, and it's just getting spread everywhere. Now, let me say this. Why was Luther so successful as a writer, and why was the Pope so threatened by Luther? Let me read you a quote from Martin Luther himself. Here's what he says. Take me, for example... I opposed indulgences and all papists, that is, people that follow the Pope, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, a revolution, I could have started such a little game at Worms, a city that he went to, that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would have been? A thug's game. I did nothing. I left it to the word. Now, that's just really important for us. Because we live in a day where people are frustrated with the government, we're frustrated with a lot of things, and a lot of people advocate revolt or force or being negative on Facebook and and all these things. And what Martin Luther did instead was he just preached the Word of God. He just preached the gospel, and he just kept preaching the gospel. And he published the gospel, and he shared the gospel. And he changed the world in his generation, and you and I can do the same thing. Amen? But we got to get it out there, and we got to utilize And we've got... We, better than the Gutenberg press, we've got the internet, okay? Not to be negative and critical, but to share God's word, amen? All right, good things, good things. Okay, so then what happens? Uh, well, let me remind you, the most dangerous threat in all of history is a common person with a common Bible committed to an uncommon cause, getting the word to the nations. So number three, uh, when you're excommunicated and you keep sharing the gospel, you're going to have to stand for it. Luther stands for it. Here's the other thing that Luther is famous for. In 1521, one year later, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the place where he lived, calls Luther before the church and before the state and says, you need to recant, you need to reject, you need to take back everything you're preaching, everything you're publishing, or we're going to kill you. Okay? And so he refuses to change his beliefs when summoned by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to a city called Worms, in German it's like Worms, if I'm saying it right, uh, we, we in English we see worms, okay, but that's just the name of it, okay. So this and uh, and this big meeting is called the Diet of Worms, okay. Now in English that just doesn't work. Sounds like you know, but uh, actually all that is a Diet is an official meeting where Luther is going to come before the emperor and before the Pope's representatives, and they're going to have all of his writings out on a table, and he's going to come before them, and they're going to say, recant, take back all that you published, or suffer the consequences, which in those days was death. Okay, And so Luther stands there, and here's what they ask him. Will you defend these books altogether, or do you wish to recant some of what you said? 
And Luther says, give me a day to think about it. And uh, I, I just, I, I wish I could paint for you what is going on. I mean, it's like being summoned to Washington, D.C. for a Senate hearing backed up by the papacy. And it's just you. And it's everything you've ever put on the internet about Jesus Christ. It's everything you've ever shared about the gospel. And you're there all alone, basically. He had some friends, but the point was it was him. And you're asked by the Senate, with the power of the presidency and the papacy, you're asked, will you take back what you're teaching about the gospel? Man, in those days... It, I mean, I, I just it, it's just amazing. We had the privilege to stand right at the place where Luther did this. And here's what he says. A day later, he comes back. I mean, can you imagine what he's thinking 24 hours, what he's praying? Can you imagine the pressure, the spiritual opposition? I mean, let's be honest. You and I compromise on far letter th- lesser things on a regular basis. But that's why we can't compromise, because there will come a time in all of our lives, I really believe, in one way or another, and in the near future for our children and their children, where they will have to ask and, and, and basically say, will you affirm the gospel and lose your life, or will you reject the gospel to save your life? Right now, you can go on the Internet and see... Christians in the Middle East who are literally being their heads sawed off with swords. Sawed off. Blood, I mean, it's it's right there. It's not a pretty sight. Just because they will not reject the gospel. So here's what Luther says. He comes back and he says, Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or plain reason, for I believe in neither Pope nor in church councils alone, for it is well known... Not only that they have erred, but they have also contradicted themselves. In other words, they're just not consistent with Scripture. I am mastered by the passages of Scripture which I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant, for it is neither safe nor honest to violate one's conscience. I can do no other. Here I take my stand, God being my helper Amen. I have a video. To, uh, I told you about the movie Luther 2003. Uh, so we can uh, take a look at this. And uh, it kind of sums up everything that we've just taught. To Albert of Mainz, Father in Christ and most illustrious Prince, forgive me that I should dare to write to you. I make bold because it is my duty to serve you and to warn you of the crooked practices of those who claim to represent your grace. Christ did not command the preaching of indulgences, but of the gospel. Forward this to Rome. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. If the Pope can empty purgatory, why would he not do so out of love rather than for money? My God, who is this Martin Luther? Fritz? What? 
Dr. Luther wanted everyone to see that. And everyone will. You have been summoned to appear by Rome. You're threatened with excommunication. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I confess that I have written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. I'll give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Wow. Is that powerful? Is that just powerful? And, uh, and so he stands for it. Now, he was given safe passage by the emperor to come here. Okay, hey, we're not going to do anything to you. Just come here. And then they challenged him to recant. And he said no. So you can imagine the safe passage is there, but not really. And so when he leaves here... Basically, what was going to happen is they were going to ambush him, take him to prison, and kill him. And his friends knew that. And so as he leaves the city of Worms, his friends kidnap him without telling him, and they're all, you know, they're all in disguise, and they kidnap him, and they take him uh, to uh, the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach. 
which is just, in other words, they just took him and, and kept him safe. Okay, so he's in this castle and he changes his name and he grows a beard and he goes under a, a, another name and he hides out for 10 months. All right. Um, so let me uh, show you some pictures of the Wartburg Castle. Well, here's where he stood. This is in Worms. And so this is the church. So imagine being summoned to this church. This, this huge dominating church. And actually, it didn't happen inside the church like all the movies. It actually happened out in this grassy area, and they were all located outside where we're standing. I don't know who those two individuals are, but uh, they look very different. And so uh, out on that grassy area. So I, I just, it's just imagine this big, intimidating church, and here you are all by yourself. And you have to say, I stand for the gospel, no matter what. Isn't that cool? Isn't that really cool? All right, next thing. So they kidnap him, and they take him to this place, the Wartburg Castle. And so, Roberto, there you are. You got your glasses on. You usually take your glasses off when you get in a picture. That's true. So, isn't that cool place? Look at the next one. So, they, they, they take him away to the Wartburg Castle outside the city of Eisenach in Germany. And uh, here's the next point. So leave that up there. The next point is number four. Luther translates it. Uh, he want, what's, the, what's the one book, out of all the things he read, out of all things he wrote, what's the one book that changed his life? What's the, what's the one book? The Bible. So what do you think he wants to do? The Bible at that time is only in Latin. And only a very few, only the scholars knew Latin. So no one can read the Bible unless you know Latin. You can only know the Bible if the priest teaches it to you, and most priests didn't even know Latin. So what does a true believer want to do? A true believer wants to get to zero people without the Bible. And so he translates the Bible from Latin, actually from the Greek, the New Testament, from the Greek into German for the first time, all by himself in this castle. In less than 10 months. How would you like to do that? This guy is an amazing, gifted man. So this is what he does. So he translated. He, he completed a rough draft of the German New Testament in 11 weeks. He translated at a rate of more than 1,500 words a day. So some of you are in Greek. There's some Greek uh, Midwestern students here. So think about that. The whole Bible was finished. The whole Bible, Hebrew and Greek, Old Testament knew by 1534. Here's what Luther said about this. If God had wanted me to die thinking I was a clever fellow, he would not have gotten me into the business of translating the Bible. Because I'm telling you, translate, and yet, by God's grace, hit out in this place, Martin Luther translated the Bible into German and did it of such quality, it was like equal to what the King James translation did for English. It set German language standards that still exist today. So it wasn't a bad translation. It was an awesome translation, not only of the Bible, but of good German. Is, is that cool? Well, it would be if you were in Germany and you had never read the Bible before. Okay, so here's the study. Here's the study of where... Uh, there's another picture of the castle. Go back, go on. Okay, here we are. This is Luther's study. Right there, Luther's study.
go to the next one. Uh, this is the desk. This is the room. Of course, he didn't have a picture of himself, but that is a picture of what he looked like. He 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 grew his beard and uh, he was and changed his name. And there he sat. Right down here is the most amazing thing in the whole study. It is a a vertebrae of a whale, and he used that for a footstool. Okay, don't you, you can research why that? I, I don't know, but anyway, it's really cool. Now maybe it's been trade trade uh, traded out numerous times, but anyway. That's where he was. That's where he translated. That's that's where for ten months he hung out. I thought that was cool. Okay, let me say this. By the end of his life, Martin Luther wrote sixty thousand pages. Yet he hoped that all my books would disappear and the Holy Scriptures alone would be read. All right. He translates. Number five. He sings it. He sings it again. All of this stuff, we as Bible believers, we as Baptists, we take for granted, right? Look on your table. How many Bibles are sitting on your table in your own language? And how many do you have on your phone? We take all of this for granted. He just gave the German people their own Bible in their own language, okay? But he also let loose the praise music and worship of the church. We're going to go upstairs and we're going to sing praise music and, you know, shame on us, some of us won't participate. Even worse, some of us will just mouth the words and not think about it and worship God. We take this stuff for granted. But do you realize that in the dark ages, if you were part of the Roman Catholic Church, you would watch other people sing. You didn't get to participate. So not only does he unleash the Bible, but he unleashed believers and able to, and he starts writing praise music. He starts writing hymns. And of course, the most famous hymn that Martin Luther ever wrote that we still sing today and is still popular today is what? What a mighty fortress is our God. Now, can you imagine? I don't, we don't know really when he wrote it, but here's a man who has lived in a fortress. When the whole world was out to get him, and he translates the Bible, and he reads Psalm 46, of which the hymn is based on, and uh, Psalm 46 begins this way, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Our God is our strength and refuge. And so he writes this, this, uh, this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I won't read it all, but I want to read one stanza of this hymn. And it says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Man, can't you see him in that Wartburg castle, translating the word of God, living this, singing this, writing this, and and letting others praise God with this. Is that not awesome? I think I have in your notes a picture of his handwritten. He not only wrote the words of that thing, but he also wrote the melody. I mean, this, this guy's got more talent in his pinky than I do. My whole, my whole body. But that's all right. The thing that we need to learn from Martin Luther, he didn't keep it to himself. Amen? He didn't keep it to himself. He shared it with others. And he unleashed people to read the Word of God. Read the Bible. 
He unleashed people to sing praises. Sing praises to God. Amen? I hope this gives you a better appreciation of what we do week in, week out, and the freedom we have. Now, it gets even better, guys. Number six, Luther marries it. In 1525, Luther expresses his freedom in Christ in the greatest way. A priest marries a nun. Can we all get an amen out of that? All right, a priest marries a nun. Why? Because it's man's tradition that says a pastor or a priest can't marry. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says, be the husband of one wife. Now, don't have a lot, but you get to have one, of which Bruce and I say, amen, right? This is radical stuff. And so the Reformation takes place and people are set free and you got a lot of nuns that want to get married. And you got a lot of monks that want to have nuns. And so monks are marrying nuns all over the place. And so there's a lady by the name of Katharina von Bora, who was a nun, and her and uh, and 11 other nuns, they're like, hey, they write to Martin Luther, and they say, we want to be set free. Uh, Come and, and, you know, deliver us. Get out of here. And so Luther sends this guy who sells fish, and he has all these fish in barrels, and it's kind of like Lord of the Rings there a little bit, or The Hobbit. They, They escape in these fish barrels, and Luther finds wives for everybody but Katharina. Now, uh, I don't know what was, you know, she was holding out for the best because basically in, in the end she says, I'm not marrying anybody but you. And so Luther, this bachelor for all these years, says, okay, I'll marry you. Uh, he, he marries her on 1525, uh, 1525. She was 25 years old and he was 42. And they had a great marriage. You say, what's the big deal about this? The deal is, for the first time, in 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 in, at, in this period, a pastor is modeling a Christian home. They never they didn't know you know pastors weren't married. So here's a man a nun a former nun and a former monk and they get together and they have children and they establish the Christian home. If you really want to study something, study the life of Katharina Luther and study about their home life. It's an amazing thing. They had a great marriage. Uh, he called her Kitty, my rib, you know, Genesis. Uh, my better half, my Lord Kate, because she ran, you know, ran the, she was the home manager that ran the home. Uh, Dr. Katharina, because she had great nursing skills. And in German, she called, he, he, uh, he uh, uh, affectionately called her Keta, which is German for chain. Okay, a little, little sarcastic humor there. Uh, he liked sleeping with his Katie, and he remarked on the joy of waking up to pigtails on the pillow next to him. Again, you got to remember, this guy had been a monk, you know. Um, so anyway, they had a great life. Uh, she is reported to have said on her deathbed, I will stick to Christ as a burr to cloth. These people finished well, trusting the gospel alone for salvation. Number seven, Luther blows it. Luther blows it. At the end of his life, I just said they finished well trusting Christ, but in a lot of ways, Luther did not finish well. And here's what I want to share with you. We're not going to go into detail on this, but when you study church history, I mean, by this time, you ought to be thinking Martin Luther's you know, just right up here under the Holy Trinity, right? He's a great guy. But all these guys were human. They were very human. And when you study church history, it gets real exciting but it also is a little deflating because when you really do your homework, you realize that these guys are human and they have sins. 
And here's how Luther blows it in two ways. First of all, at the end of his life, he, he writes some very anti-Jewish material. And I have a handout for you on that. You can read more about it. But um, if there's one thing un- uh, secular world knows about Luther, it's hammering the 95 Thesis. But they also know that he wrote these very anti-Jewish um, booklets against the Jews. And they were so bad that later in the 1930s, Hitler and the Nazi party in Germany were able to quote Luther and say, what we're doing is Christian. What we're doing in the Holocaust and what we're doing to the Jews. See, Martin Luther, our great, you know, he's the patron saint of Germany. I mean, he is the hero of Germany. He's the patriot of Germany. And they were able to, and people still use that today. So what happens? His views of Jews changed from being compassionate in the middle of his life to being critical later in life to actually condemning them in 1543, only three years before he dies. You've got to keep that in mind. So let me tell you what happened. First of all, he grew frustrated because many Jews refused to convert to Christianity. So he thought, hey, we're sharing the gospel with them, and, uh, and, and they ought to come, uh, you know, come to Christ. And they didn't. You ever witnessed to somebody and witnessed to them and wanted them to come to Christ and they didn't, and then you got angry about it? I have. Have you ever done that? Well, he did that on a large scale, okay? Then he failed to understand the teaching of Romans 9 through 11, and we can't go into all of that, that explains why so many of God's chosen people refuse to accept Jesus. He made the mistake that many Reformed theologians still make today of thinking that God has abandoned the Jews and turned to the church of Jesus Christ. So he got his theology wrong. Um, Also, Luther didn't separate church and state. In these days, whatever the emperor was, that's what everybody else was. So you could go to bed a Roman Catholic, and someone new would take power, and you could wake up a Lutheran just because of the state. And so because the Jewish people were rejecting Christ, that was a civil crime that you could be uh, executed for. And then the bottom line is this. Luther was getting old. He was struggling with his health. He was about to die, and he failed to grow old gracefully. You ever known someone who, when they got, the older they got, they got negative about everything, and they got hateful about everything? You ever known anybody like Yeah, sure. And that's what he did. So that doesn't give him an excuse, but he was wrong. Okay, so here's the question. Let me end with this. Is the, is the Reformation over? No. The Roman Catholic Church still teaches what Luther was protesting back in 1517. Listen, the Reformation isn't over. There's nothing that he protested that the Catholic Church has changed. Okay, Most Catholics don't know that, but the reality is the Roman Catholic Church still needs to be brought back in line with what? Scripture alone, faith alone, and Christ alone for salvation. Number two, no, many Protestant churches and denominations stop short of going all the way in reforming according to a New Testament local church. Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, they still baptize infants. Where'd that come from? Did it come from the Bible? No, it came from the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't reform enough. They didn't go far enough. Uh, Many of them still see the Lord's Supper, the bread, kind of becoming a little bit intermingled with Christ's body. They don't have a clear view of the Lord's Supper. 
they still view church leadership as a hierarchy uh, with bishops that control local churches. Uh, that's not in the New Testament. Uh, so they didn't go far enough. I could still go on. Many of them still today think the Jews have been totally set aside and there's no future for Israel. So there's still Reformation to do. But lest you leave here today thinking we think Baptists are perfect, let's look at number three. No, there are still Baptists and other types of Bible church, uh, churches that practice believers' baptism. They don't baptize infants. They baptize believers on the right side of the gospel. But they still need to realign themselves with Christ and His Word. Go to Revelation 2 through 3 and understand this. No local church is perfect. So we have some guests here today. Let me just say right now, we're not perfect. Our church isn't perfect. You never, you can't go to a perfect church. But you want to go to a church that teaches the Bible as the final authority. You want to go to a church that teaches the gospel is Jesus Christ alone, faith alone for salvation. You want to go to a church that the local church is not controlled by the state or any other authority. And you want to go to a church where the people of God, men and women, praise God, read this word, and they say, here I stand, I can do no other. Amen? Listen, Halloween is not all demons and darkness. Luther didn't get it all right, but he got a lot right, and we can say, happy Reformation Day next Halloween. Okay? Is that pretty good? All right, now if you want more, you're like, you got to be kidding me. No, if you want more, there's some books to read at the bottom. There's some books and there's some movies to see. All right? So I hope this encouraged you. And uh, to our guests, come back. We're, we don't talk about Martin Luther every Sunday or bash on Catholics. But uh, uh, isn't it great to learn church history? Yeah, it, it's really good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, I, <laughs> I thank you for saving a German monk who was steeped in superstition and ritual and darkness. And you showed him the light of the God through his study of the Bible. And you unleashed that changed the world. And yet many Germans don't know this message. And I thank you that Keith and Debbie Candy are once again in the spirit of Martin Luther, but more important, in the spirit of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel to the common person in Germany, and that we can support that work. And then, God, I pray for us right here at Glenwood that we would stand in the face of opposition, not with force and negativity, but with faith and the gospel, love, and power of Jesus Christ. May we reflect this week. How can I take a stand? How can I share with others? And may we go upstairs right now and not go through the motions, but actually enjoy the freedom we have in Christ to worship as believer priests. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen.